how our talk is going to look today. <clears throat> Rather than giving you a, um, a sermon, you're going to get something along those lines, but it's going to be structured differently. We're going to talk through five questions, okay, that were raised by our church over the course of this series in the study of Nehemiah. This is officially the end of Nehemiah. And so from the very beginning, if you were here with us from that time, you'll remember that we asked you guys to email, write in, fill out a connection card, however you wanted to get it to us, to let us know the questions you had that dealt with uh, the the subjects we addressed in Nehemiah, and there were a ton of them. So what we'll talk about today... um, is, is really the culmination of that. There are five questions, if you will, that we'll talk through that, that pretty much cover, I'd say, about 98% of what was asked. Somewhat ironically, um, the, two, the two major questions that were raised, and you'll see our questions have been developed out of that, were around the will of God, understanding, knowing it, and, and our spacing issue. Like, what does the future look like for us regarding where we meet and how we worship? So that's what we'll talk about today for these, uh, the time that we had this morning. And so if you would... Uh, let's go ahead and jump right in, turn your attention to what we're going to talk about now, these questions. So question number one is kind of introductory, and I felt like it was important to address. What was the point of the Nehemiah series? So if you're visiting with us here today, or maybe you were kind of here and there throughout these past months, I want to tell you generally what the point of this study was. Basically, it was to have an honest conversation about where we are as a church and as individuals before God, and to really highlight how God always has a great plan for our future. It's very easy, I think, throughout the throes of life for us to get to this place where we forget that there is always purpose and meaning in our life, even, even when we don't feel that way. We'll talk about emotions today pretty seriously, but no matter where we think we are in life, God always has a future for us. And so we looked at this story in Nehemiah of God's people who were discouraged and living without hope, uh, but in God's grace, he reminds them throughout the course of this book that there's a, there's a what could be in their lives and a, and a what is, okay? So the what could be is if they will follow him, where God will take them. The what is is their current situation. And I suspect for many of you in this room today, we have different interpretations of what our what is is. For some of us, that might be a good thing. For some of us, maybe not. No matter where you are, there is always a future and a hope in God if we will follow him and take him at his word. And so the story of Nehemiah is really just the story of how God worked mightily in his people's lives to move his kingdom forward. And that's what makes it so applicable to our church. Um, Essentially, it's what God did with his people. And in case you haven't figured it out, um, we are all God's people here today. And the same principle applies to us. We, We studied how God moved his kingdom forward. And throughout this series, and maybe the question, the ultimate question you can ask yourself today is, is this challenge to ask ourselves when we think of our lives individually and certainly our church family, since we are truly at the beginning of what we are calling our first maturity curve, we have literally accomplished the first five years of vision at Restoration. Everything we wanted to do, we have done. It's time to ask the question, what do the next five years look like? Are we really going to take God at his word and recognize that he has a future for us as individuals and us as a church? And so that was the general framework of Nehemiah. And out of that general framework came these two concepts, the will of God and meeting space. And so we'll address these next three questions, all really deal with God's will. There were so many questions about God's will, you can pray for me for a little wisdom on this, that I actually thought uh, I might do a little short miniseries in between now and Christmas on the will of God. I was actually astounded about how many qu- people had questions about this. And so these three questions will really try to, in a very uh, pointed way, sweep through the majority of those questions you submitted. The first one was kind of an obvious one, uh, but a very important one. Does God want me to know his will? Does God, right, we sing about him, we experience his grace, uh, we worship him, and we, we have this somewhat analogous and incredibly confused term called God's will. It's a little slippery sometimes. 
And uh, some people will use God's will to do terrible things. Some people will feel like they love God, but God never reveals his will. So the, the big question today is, does God want you and I uh, to know his will? And the answer to that, can you take a guess at that? Anybody? Okay, so two of you feel like God wants you to know his will. That's awesome. All right. Hopefully the rest of you will believe me by the end of this. The overwhelming answer to this is yes. God wants you to know his will. The distinction here is it might be maybe a little different than what you were expecting. And so, very frankly speaking, most Christians have a very unchristian understanding about what God's revealed will for their life is. In fact, if you, if you chronicle the modern understanding of how a lot of people understand understanding God's will, it actually is more in line with what we would almost consider to be like pagan religious philosophies, non-Christian religious philosophies. There seems to be more of that permeating the Christian heart and mind than there actually is what God says about his will. And so the short answer to this is yes, God wants you to know his will, his revealed will for your life. He's not trying to hide it from you. In fact, let me give you an additional measure of confidence here. God wants you to know him and his will for your life more than you want to know his will for, for your life. God desires us to know him more deeply than we often desire to know him. And so you have to remember that, that when you say, does God want me to know his will, God himself wants you to know his will. And we can see this in two pretty clear ways. The first is, and this is a super important term to remember, is that God has already revealed his will to you in scripture. And we call this God's revealed will. And if ever you wondered whether or not God wants you to know him, all you have to do is recognize that he's given us this this compilation of his truth to know that. The, the understanding who God is just through his revealed will in Scripture will keep you busy uh, for the rest of your life. And so the point of the Bible, although there are many to them, the overarching point of the Bible is that God is a God who breaks into history and he wants to be known. And he wants to be known by, by you and I. And although Jesus says the rocks will worship him if we do not, God's primary desire is that you and I would love him and know him deeply, that we would truly understand who he is and what he desires for our life. And so as we move into this question, I, I want to encourage you guys to never forget that. And that truth should really compel us to want to know God's will for our lives in Scripture. If God says, I want to be known, then those of us that want to follow him, we should really have that same attitude. We should want to know him in the same way that he wants to be known. And here, um, here is how we'll unpack this this morning. It's super important that you grasp this truth first, because if you don't understand that the primary way you know God is through Scripture, you're never going to get to the part of the will that everybody's always asking about. Unfortunately, when people say, most of the time anyways, that they want to know God's will, they seldom mean, I'd like to know God as he's revealed himself in Scripture. What they want to talk about is God's particular will. They want to talk about the details of life. And you'll never know the details of life unless you understand God's revealed will in Scripture. A deep understanding of God's revealed will in Scripture will give you a greater clarity about his particular will in your life. And this is what people mean. When they say, uh, I want to know God's will for my life, what they're really asking most of the time is, hey, I know God wants me to go to school. Like, I know God has a college in my future. I know that, but I don't know what college to go to. There are a lot of states in America and countries overseas where I can study. So, yes, God wants me to go to college. Where? Or how about this one? Um, I, uh, I really want to work, right? I know God's called me to work, but I'm not exactly sure what kind of career I should get involved in. Or I know that God says, hey, it's good for, uh, for us to be married, for a man and woman to be married. I know that that's good, but I'm not really sure who I should marry because there are a lot of people on earth. This is what I mean by general uh, revealed will and then the particular. Most people don't want to know God's will in Scripture. They want to know like what's going to happen with their life in the future. Now, I want you to hear this very clearly for me. You have to know that if you want to know what God wants for your life in the details... If you try to do that without first, or try to ask that question without first knowing what God wants for your life in Scripture, 
it, it is foolish at best and totally unwise at worst. And the reason this matters so much is because the way you and I discern God's particular will for life, how we make good decisions that honor God and are wise in our lives on a daily basis, the way we make wise choices is, is by knowing the wisdom that is found in the scripture, particularly the words of Jesus. And so the bottom line is, is if you want to know how to make a good decisions on a daily basis, you have to know what wisdom is and you have to be willing to pursue it. Because oftentimes what's going to happen is God is going to give you general direction, but he's not going to give you a, a, a detailed roadmap about every single thing you should say and do in life. And so the simple way to answer this question about how to know God's will for your life is to first ask this. Is it supported by scripture? This might sound, I don't mean this to sound like I'm, I'm belittling or that I'm not taking this subject seriously, but a lot of times in counseling and just talking to people, if, if people had a deeper understanding of the word, they would actually know concretely way more about what they should or should not do in life. And so first and foremost, you have to know who God is in scripture. Understanding who he is really determines who we are. That's the way it's supposed to work. And when we understand who we are in light of God, that should begin to shape how we understand what we should do with our lives. So first, is it clearly articulated in Scripture? Is this something we know will honor God and be wise for our lives? Okay? And that's really where the second part of this comes into play. Uh, wisdom. To know how to make good decisions on a daily basis, you have to have God's, God's wisdom. Okay? So let me say this, that most people today, they, when I say they have kind of a pagan understanding of God's will... They had their own equivalent version of like, you know, throwing dice or casting lots to try to figure out what God is or isn't telling them. And that's just not the way that it usually works with God. And I'll share a good example with you. It's a personal story. Now we'll move out of like theology and get into the practicality of this. I'll share with you the example about how I sorted out uh, this, a situation like this in my own life. There are many of them, but what was perhaps the most significant decision I made in my life was, was what to do when I really began to sense that God was leading me into ministry in 1997 when I had become a Christian. It was a pretty radical turnaround in my life. It was, my conversion was Pauline, truly. I was like completely not worshiping God in any way in my life. And then one day, after uh, people were talking to me about Christ, I professed faith in Jesus. And very quickly after that, people that I really trusted began sensing a call to ministry in my life before I could even see it or sense it. And so in 1997, a group of people and a handful of pastors started to encourage me to, to really ask God about whether or not my, my future career was, I, I wanted to be in law enforcement, that's what I was pursuing at that season in life, whether or not that's where God was wanting me to go, or if God was leading me into something different, particularly pastoral ministry. That was a mind blower for me because it had never even been on my radar until 1997. So after beginning to sense a little bit of that, I, I, I started asking God the question, okay, what's, what's the purpose? What's my future here? And it started, uh, it started as kind of a dominant theme with people that I knew that I really trusted. They began recommending that if I really wanted to take this call seriously, that I should pursue studies at a seminary. In other words, if I wanted to be prepared to lead a church, then I should go uh, pursue education that prepared me, you know, heart, soul, and mind, that, that sharpened my mind about understanding the truths of Scripture, how to live them out in life, and certainly how to lead other people in them. And so, as you can imagine, I'm almost 22 now, never had any major uh, involvement in any substantial faith, but I, I get to this place now where I'm supposed to pick a seminary. I've been a Christian like nine months in my life, and so the, figuring out how to be a Christian was one thing, but how to determine like where I was going to go to school and, and you know, process all this stuff was, was really concerning to me. It's a case in point of I had a, a real idea. I had a revealed idea from God. I knew he wanted me to do this, but I had no idea what those particular details looked like in my life. And so at first, I was, um, 
totally paralyzed. I had, I mean, I had to kind of narrow down all of the seminary options that existed around the globe. And I, decided, I started to do something that at least made sense to me. I picked the ones that were connected to my denominational affiliation at the time. So I said, okay, we got the whole globe, but I've got this narrowed down to six. There were six really solid Baptist schools in America. And so after looking at them and thinking about them and seeing where they were at and seeing what their uh, study emphases were, out of those six, two really started to stand out. And out of those two, again, you, you can't go to two schools at the same time. I, it was, no great, it was no, not a greater help for me. I felt like not knowing how to pick between two and not knowing how to pick between six was just as confusing. And so for a good season of my life, I entered what I call the analysis paralysis camp. Have you guys ever been in this? Where you so overanalyze something that you actually can't make a decision. You're so concerned about making the right choice that you actually can't make any choice. That's exactly where I was. And for the most part, I tend to be a pretty decisive uh, person. My wife will tell you sometimes even, even stubbornly. So this was kind of like out of sorts for me. But I felt like I was tethering this thing to some, some understanding of God's will. I felt like I had to pick the right school. And if I didn't pick the right school, that was going to be the end, of, uh, the end of my life. Like, I don't know, God would just suck me off the planet and I'd never be able to do anything again for him again. That's really what I was thinking in life. One of these was the right choice. And unless I figured it out, uh, I was going to make the wrong choice. I will tell you that I have never been more wrong about how to make a decision in, in my life, okay? And this is often where we find ourselves when we're trying to discern the will of God in the particular details. And I'll share with you why I felt like I was wrong. And I think this is, a, this is not just a me principle. This is a principle on making good decisions. Here's why I was wrong. The, the most obvious thing was that both of these schools were really good schools. They were, they were schools that by Christian standards, honored God. They taught sound doctrine. They had good principles for how they were training men and women to serve Jesus around the globe. And so just, just on the revealed will, right, when we begin to understand who God says we should be, he wants us to know who he is according to his scripture. He wants us to live in light of that. When you start looking at God's revealed will in scripture, if I were to put both these schools next to it, both of them lined up. There, there was truly no wrong choice when it came to that. Both were going to provide me the training and exposure that I felt like I needed to do what God was calling me to do. So truly, hear me, no wrong decision here. And it's worth pointing out that once we establish the revealed will of God in Scripture, this is often what happens. In this case, it was how to prepare myself for ministry. Once we know the revealed will of God in Scripture, a lot of times we have more freedom in our lives for the particular details of life than we often understand. In other words, if we're loving God well and we truly know Him well, we really have a lot of latitude in understanding where, where we're going in life and what we're trying to do in life. In this case, what school to go to. So for me, I got to this place where I, I, I realized like I actually had a say in the process. Like We're not miniature robots who God you know, lays out every single step and we never understand our future. We're given his, his, under, his wisdom. We're given the general understanding of his will. And then in life, we are often forced to make good decisions, sometimes even with a little bit of faith in the middle of all that stuff. The key being that my decision or our decisions, they never contradict Scripture and, and that they are the wisest decision for my life or for our lives, right? So if I was going to go to like maybe a Mormon seminary, that probably would have not been the best idea for me to want to uh, pursue studies or serve a pastor in evangelical churches. There's some concerns there. And once I realized that, I made a decision. And I made a decision, perhaps more importantly, with peace in my heart. I made, I made the decision not embracing the, the current uh, FOMO culture that we live in. I taught on this two years ago, the fear of missing out. 
We live in a world where people will not make decisions anymore because they are afraid to choose something, they're going to miss out on something. And the truth is, I guess you will. When I decided to go to school in New Orleans and not Louisville, I missed out on going to Louisville. But if I understand God's will in my life, I'm not really missing out on anything. I'm pursuing a path before my Lord. There's, there's a whole other thing that God is going to put before my life. And so I came to this conclusion that I really wasn't going to miss out on anything. I was just going to serve God to the best of my ability in New Orleans. And so God can hear me here, and at times he does make particular details explicitly clear. I'm not saying God does not speak to us like that anymore. He can do that. I've not had a ton of those moments in my, in my life. I mean, I've had several, but I can't say that on a weekly basis God is like emailing me about what I should do on Tuesday. And he certainly did not do it in this particular instance. I don't have a lot of those experiences. So for me, I started asking God about wisdom. I knew he wanted me to go to seminary. I wanted to know where and how to figure this out and to make the wisest decision. And after that, clarity began to follow. And I picked New Orleans uh, on th- for three reasons, frankly. Uh, the first was it came with really high recommendations. I had a lot of friends that went there. And they spoke highly of it. So that's always good. There's a good word of mouth, right? Secondly, I like the fact that it was in an urban context. I was living in Florida at the time. This is the second time I've lived here. And I, I had just started liking Florida a little bit when I would become a Christian because I was introduced to a whole new world of, of people in Florida. And the, the place that I really disdained in my younger days, uh, I actually was sad to leave it. But I got kind of excited about moving away because I was moving back into an urban context. And, you know, you guys know I was raised a city kid, and that was very appealing. Uh, Traffic and smog and concrete and horns, that is kind of nice to a certain degree. It's got its own beauty, if you will. And I love the fact that the school was training men and women for mission in an urban context. Very appealing. My heart was there in a good way. And lastly, just being very blunt, uh, I had found out that after being accepted, I had to submit all my stuff to get in. But once I was accepted, I, I found out that I was offered a, a first-year presidential scholarship. And so uh, what this means is that they said, listen, if you come here, uh, not your books or any of your other stuff, but we're going to pay for your first two semesters. Like All of your classes are going to be completely paid for. And that was very big for me because I did not have any outside help going to school. I had to make my own way the whole time. Uh, I paid semester to semester. It took me longer than normal just because I, I didn't have a additional supplemental cash flow coming in. I had to chip my own way to get that done. And for me, it, I made it a priority to not have a ton of school debt <clears throat> when I got out of school. I graduated not owing anybody a nickel because I didn't want to be paying my life back um, to a school. Now, that's not a bad thing. I'm not like knocking sco- student loans. I'm just telling you, for me, uh, that debt was not an option. And so I didn't want it hanging over my head. And, and all of this led to a conclusion. Both schools were good. Both would have trained me properly. Both were clearly within the revealed will of God. However, it was just a much wiser decision to attend New Orleans because of my affinity for the area uh, and the scholarship. And so here's the thing I want to say about this idea. How do I know the will of God? What I'm trying to say here is that this isn't a wrong choice. There was no wrong choice here. And this is often how it is with God's particular will in our life. When we function within God's revealed will in Scripture, there is often a great freedom to flesh out the particulars of what life looks like on a daily basis for ourselves. Let me give you another example of this, okay? Think about marriage. Some of you are married. Some of you are not. Some of you are wanting to be married. Um, The Bible says, right, we know God's revealed will is that it is good for a man and a woman to get married. From the very beginning of Scripture, God honors this. He says this is a good thing. That is the revealed will of God in Scripture. But on earth, let's get practical now, right, in the particulars, that does not mean that every man and woman are equally compatible. Just because God says it's good for a man and woman to be married, it doesn't mean that every single man and woman is equally qualified to be married to each other. You might, uh, you know, know somebody that's a great person. They might love God, but they have radically different priorities in life, different goals. And so in that scenario, the revealed will of God is kind of clear. Be married. It's a good thing. We have the freedom to do that. 
But the particular details of what that looks like in life, they call us to make some very important and wise decisions about who we marry based on, again, certain criteria that God already gives us in the Bible. For example, for those of us that are in Christ, it is imperative that you marry somebody who loves Christ. If you don't, you're already on two different planets regarding life. Do they love Jesus? Super important. Here's another important one, almost as close. Like, do they love you? You know, do they care about you? You, That's kind of somewhat essential in the paradigm. If they are like the greatest thing ever to, to the kingdom of God on earth, but they have no feelings or emotion or desire to be with you, you should just check out of that thing and move on, right? That's, it's unwise to pursue that. You're just going to get hurt. And I would say that when you think about relationships and this idea, do you feel there's an essential compatibility? Nobody's perfect. Nobody's like, you know, match made in heaven. I don't even believe in that idea. But is there essential compa- compatibility in, in what matters most in life? Do, are you guys like on the same page in most things? Or is there a desire to get on the same page in most things? If not, it's probably not the wisest choice to marry that person. Let me give you another example. Trying to figure out what kind of career you want to pursue in life. The revealed will of God in Scripture says work is good. We've talked about this. All work is good. It's noble. If it's noble and just in God's eyes, work is good. doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter whether you're checking out groceries at Publix or you're the president of the United States. In God's eyes, uh, work that is noble and just is good, and God commands us to work. We did that whole series on that last year, right? And so if you know that, that it is good to work and God wants us to work, you often have an incredible amount of freedom in how you pursue a career that honors God and fulfills you. And so the bottom line in this is this. If you're functioning within the revealed will of Scripture, there really is no wrong decision that you can make in life. You might make a decision that isn't the wisest, but even in that situation, God can redeem that. I always use that analogy about Paul getting to Rome. Paul, the, the Christianity exploded to the world, right, when Paul got to Rome. But Paul did just about every single thing he could do to keep himself from getting to Rome. He did, made a ton of unwise decisions before that actually happened. But God in his grace, because he was trying to pursue him, he worked out all things for the good of his kingdom and for the glory of his son, right? God can even make, he can make good things happen out of our mistakes if we truly make a really unwise des- decision. So if you, um, if you love God and you're pursuing him with heart, soul, and mind in scripture, and you want to be involved in social services, you want to help people, or you want to do what I do and serve the church, or you want to be involved in law enforcement or hospitality or whatever industry it is, you want to be involved in law or medicine, the bottom line is, is that you really can't make a wrong choice. If you're functioning within the revealed will of God, you should ask God how you can make the greatest difference for him, where you can spend your days doing something that you truly love, that honors him, and really benefits other people. Because God wants us working in every sector of life. He doesn't just want to call people into the pastorate. He does that, and that's super important. But he wants to call all of you, and he already has called many of you, into certain career trajectories where you have been placed there as purposely as I have been placed here. God wants you to be free to select the kind of work you want to do if you're functioning within the kind of work that honors him. But remember, I'll say one last thing before we move on here. You're very, unli- you're very likely to make unwise, very unwise decisions if you focus on the particulars of life first. This is where most people start, and it's never going to end well if you do this. You start by knowing who God is and what that means for your life, and then you start to make decisions about the dailies of your life. And so I would say this, the great, the church fathers, John Calvin, I'll paraphrase his words, one of the, I at least consider him a church father in my own eyes, he said this, I'll paraphrase, so love God first through his word and then live your life. And there's an incredible amount of freedom in that thing. But the key is that you understand what it means to love God. It means that you're loving God for who he is. You're pursuing him with your heart, soul, and mind. And then you have the freedom to, to live your life in a way that honors God. 
You have more freedom to understand the particular will of, life, uh, of God in your life than we often give ourselves credit for. So be at peace, not, not paralyzed, okay? How do I know the will of God, or does God want me to know his will? Yes, he does. Connected to this is what role do feelings play uh, in discerning how God is speaking to me in life or leading me in life? Interesting question. So now we kind of know God wants us to know his will. The next most dominant question was, what about feelings? How do we trust the inner, the inner compass of our hearts, right? Now listen, um, it's undoubtedly true that feelings will attempt to play a role in the decisions we make in life. That, th- this question needs to be modified. Feelings are going to try to make decisions for you in your life. So the better question is, how much do we allow the emotions of our heart, the feelings of our heart, to steer the direction of our lives? It is inevitable that emotion is going to try to play a role in what you say and do. And sometimes that can be good and sometimes it cannot be good. The question is, how much credence or how much validity do we give to the heart when it tries to tell us what to do? And so let's begin by looking at what Scripture says about the heart. If we want to know how to live particularly from the heart, we go to the revealed will of God in Scripture. We start with what we know and then we, practice, we, we apply it to life. Let's begin with, looking at what Scripture says about the heart. First, the heart can be deceitful. I didn't make that up. Jesus said it. Let's look at what he says. Matthew 15, 16 through 9. Are you still so dull? You get the impression that he's talking to people and he's like, I've said this like a million times, but I'm going to say it again because apparently in this situation there's some, there's some dullness here. There's, the mind and the heart are not connecting to the truth. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? He's speaking to the Pharisees. They're, they're slandering the disciples because they're eating food without washing their hands and they're basically saying, listen, it's your external actions that are, that are causing God to not love you. And, and Jesus flips the, the religious paradigm here. He says, but the things, forget about the stomach and the hands, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. This is what defiles them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, and slander. And so in that teaching, in a very analogous way, Jesus tells us, and I've said this before, right? The heart is the physical, spiritual, and emotional control center of life. And what he lets us know here is that the heart, if left unchecked, the heart, when it is not being sanctified and shaped by the grace of Jesus, it will become its own thing. It will literally develop a mind of its own. And because of that, um, we get this implied here, but in other places in Scripture, we have explicit commands to guard our hearts, to make sure we understand what we are letting into our hearts, because what goes in the heart eventually comes out some other place, and it begins to shape who we are and what we do. So we're careful about what goes into it, and we should be healthily skeptical about listening to it when it's trying to encourage us to do things, because sometimes the heart can speak properly, sometimes it can be pretty deceitful. And here's why. If emotions, okay, if we, if we back this up and say, what role do feelings play? And we say, I, you know, I make decisions based on feelings. Some people say that. If emotions, the emotions or the feelings of the heart, are, give us, they're the final say in what we do in life, then what's happened is we've chosen to follow another God. We're no longer worshiping the objective truth of Jesus. We're essentially worshiping the God of our emotions. That's the, the control center of life telling us what to do. And Jesus says here, listen, left unchecked, the heart is like a literal factory for negative emotions and actions. Sometimes your heart is going to tell you things about you that, that, that's just not right. Your heart's going to tell you to be shamed. Your heart's going to tell you you're not worth it. You're not valuable. You're not loved. You're not cared for. Sometimes, I mean, our own inner workings are literally working to denigrate our value, meaning, life, uh, purpose in life. So the heart can hurt us sometimes if we don't have some corrective truth where Jesus says, hold up for a second, let me, let me put my hand over your heart for a minute and tell you, you are loved, you are worthy, you are valuable, 
This is not true, right? This is what the heart can do. And if we get to the place where we let our hearts define us, as opposed to letting the scripture define our hearts, the more, li- the more we do that, the more likely we are going to be able to embrace and justify negative behaviors or actions in life. The heart can start doing these things that Jesus is talking about, because eventually we can just think that it's right and we follow suit. Jesus says this. Listen to how Jeremiah describes this same reality in Jeremiah 17, 19, uh, 9 through 10. It'll be behind me. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. And so here we learn something else about the heart. We see that somebody can do something really wrong, but they can have a completely right heart. Internally, they can believe with all they are that they're doing the right thing, but what they are doing is something incredibly wrong. We learn here that the heart can be so deceitful that it will mislead us at times, so much so that we can actually think we are discerning it properly, we are understanding what it is saying, that we have a control or a mastery of it, but the truth is we we really don't. He says, like, following your heart um, is is the reason that at times so many people can do things that they believe honor God. They can do things that they believe are the will of God that actually do not honor God, God at all. And so that's why he lets us know the person who has to have the final say on how valid your deeds are in life, the person who knows your heart and my heart better than you and I do, no matter how authentic or right we feel or believe our feelings are, the only person who can objectively validate or invalidate a feeling is God. In other words, when it comes to our emotions and feelings, without some objective clarity in life, we are likely to do things that feel right in our eyes, but straight up aren't in God's. That's the bottom line of what both these things say. You can have deeds on the outside that you think are great and good, but internally, you can have a heart that it just it invalidates everything. I mean, look at the Pharisees themselves. They did all the things right on the outside, but everything they did was so wrong because they missed the heart of their father in heaven in the process of it. That's what's happening in Matthew when Jesus is literally rebuking them, right? So there's the theology. Now let's look at some practical stuff here for a minute. Let me give you some four examples about feeling and reality. It might feel right, okay? This is so true in our culture. It might feel right to work 80 hours a week because your job needs you, but you are likely hurting other people and other areas of your life if you're doing so. The feeling might feel right, but you might be causing real damage in your own life and the life of other people. The feeling, even though it feels good, is not right. It might feel right to say, let's jump into morality. These are revealed wills of God. Things he speaks about. He speaks about work and rest. He speaks about relationship, right? This is a common thing in our culture today. It might feel right to say, listen, we've been dating a long time, and I know God says, like, we should wait. Like, we should have sex after we get married. That's like a gift for you and me and for both of us. But, but I really feel like God knows my heart, and he knows that, that one day uh, we're going to get married, and, and it's okay. And uh, that guy's neck I will break if he tries to date my daughters. <laughs> That's what's going to happen there, right? That guy's out there. Maybe some of you have tried, dated him, right? It's, it's wrong. The feeling is not, is not, it doesn't line up with what God says is right and pure and true in marriage. It might feel right to have a couple of, of, of rough weeks in life, and because of that, you just got to, you know, you, you push the eject button. I talked about this two years ago. You just back out of all your commitments. You know, life's just crazy. I just got to step back from everything. And what happens is you leave a slew of hurt people and relationships in the past, unmet obligations, and, and, and really, while it feels right to just check out of life, it's not right at all. Because in checking out, you have like, you've checked a bunch of people into things now that they have to figure out and deal with. The difference between what feels right and what actually is right can be very incongruent. It can also be congruent at times, but it can be very incongruent, and that's what we're talking about here. So we've got to be careful to not give our feelings uh, a greater voice in our lives than the counsel of God. The final say has to be the counsel of God, and here's why. Here's another reason. Our general understanding about things in life can be really flawed at times. Yes, our heart can be deceitful, but sometimes we can just really not interpret situations right. 
Listen to what Proverbs 3, 1 through 8 teaches us. My son, do not forget my teaching. My teaching, right? So here already we're rooted now in the clear, revealed understanding of who God is. Do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart. For they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. It doesn't say trust in your heart with all your heart. It says trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. There are two diametrically opposed ideas there. Trust in your heart with all your heart and you lean on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and you lean on his understanding. Two totally different things. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. This is kind of another evidence of what I just talked about. Love God well. Live your life with the confidence of knowing that even when you veer, he will make your path straight. He still loves you enough to keep you going to the places he wants you to go. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Now, I think it's pretty fair to say that one of the greatest ways we lean on our own understanding and in the process completely disconnect ourselves from who God is and what he wants for us is when we let emotions and feelings rule the day. They have a place, a very valid place in our lives. And I'm, hear me here, I'm not saying they're always evil. They're always bad. However, Because we know how flawed they can be at times, it makes sense that we follow the exhortation of Scripture and make sure we always sift them through reliable channels before acting. A great verse that people try to abuse here is when the Bible says, you know, um, uh, basically uh, follow the desires of your heart. We kind of read these ideas in Scripture sometimes, right? But the idea with that is always that the desires of our heart are in alignment with the desires of God's heart. So you can't just disconnect that from who God is, right? And so the bottom line in this is that you should never let unchecked feelings, no matter how confident you are in them, dictate your actions. And I'll give you a personal example here, a short one, but in my own life, because I too am subjected, uh, I I have emotions, you know, and I've shared with you the one that tries to dominate my life, it's always anger. Um, Typically when something happens, anger is is my first default reaction, internally anyways. I want to solve stuff by getting angry and, 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 you know, dealing with it that way. And so because I know that I have a certain emotion that will try to trump the reason of my mind and the grace of Jesus in my heart, I years ago implemented what I call the three-day rule. And so anytime I am dealing with something that I feel like my emotions are trying to drive the reins of my life, when I feel them trying to get away with me, um, I, st- I just stop. I refuse to make knee-jerk reactions or decisions in life. I have a three-day cool-down period. I take at least three days, sometimes more if need be, sometimes less, to let my feelings settle. And it is amazing what a little time and objective clarity from God can do when our emotions run awry. When you, when you turn the, the boiling water down, you know, as, as the, the vapor of that fades away, cl- clarity often comes into sight, and we save ourselves from doing really silly or bad things sometimes. So what is the best way to deal with emotions in our life? Here's how we'll wrap this up. Here's what wisdom says. <clears throat> Feelings must always be sifted through, this isn't in the Bible, but I'll call it this, the holy trinity of decision-making. And here are three steps you should always take before acting on an emotional impulse. First, ask God if what you are about to do is aligned with his revealed will in Scripture. Does it meet his mark for your life? When I get cut off on Dunlawton every day, I want to get out of my car and get angry. But that's not necessarily the revealed will of God in Scripture. I know that that profits God nothing, and it doesn't do me any good to get angry. The guy that cut me off doesn't even care that he did it, right? Is what I'm about to do, is there, is there a clear teaching on it? Oftentimes, that can immediately, uh, the, the, the conversation stops there. Does it line up with God, who God is in Scripture and what he tells us to be? Then, if, if there's some fuzziness there, if, if you're maybe in the freedom side of life, 
Ask God to reveal the true motive of your feelings and bring some clarity to them. Like Jesus said, like Jeremiah saying, don't just blindly trust your heart. Know God is with you and he wants to keep your path straight. Ask him, God, I'm feeling this right now. He already knows that. You're not going to like raise something he isn't aware of. Let him know where you are at and then ask him to help you truly understand where you are at. On that day you wake up feeling like you're worthless, you should say to God, I know you say I'm not worthless. I don't really feel that right now, but help me to help my heart to not deceive me any longer. You've got to let God speak to the heart because he wants to do that. He's not giving you a spirit of fear and timidity, power, love, and self-confidence. That's who God wants you to be. So when you don't have that, um, ask God to restore that. Ask him to show you, and he will. And then thirdly, we can never talk about how we communicate with God without talking about how God communicates to us through each other. Ask a trusted believer. The counsel of God has to be sifted through other Christians. You have to ask, is what I'm about to do affirmed by people that I trust and love? People who might, if you want to make a decision that honors Jesus, then you have to talk to people who you know have a history of making good decisions that honor Jesus. Every single one of us has a ton of people in our lives we can go to for counsel or advice. But that does not mean, much like marriage, every single person in our lives is worthy of speaking to the point of of shaping our hearts. You've got to go to people who have proven themselves, not perfect, but they've proven themselves as knowing God and loving him and doing their best of their ability to, to know him well. Because it's just about guaranteed that when you go to a brother or sister in Christ, they're going to be more objective about your situation than you often can be in the heat of the moment, especially if you're on day one and not day three of your cool down here. That's super, super, super important, okay? So ask the word, ask God, and ask somebody who loves you. And there's no guarantee that you'll make proper and right decisions here, but I think you'll find emotion will have its proper place on the bookshelf of your heart. It will no longer be the 65-volume you know, encyclopedia on the top shelf that dictates everything you say and do. We love emotions. Just be careful with them. Next question. Once I know what God wants me to do, when should I actually do it? Now, this is obviously a question about timing. And let me first say here, the nature of this question is kind of connected to the first question we asked. If we're not careful here, what happens is we can understand, like, um, the pagan understanding of God. We can basically say, like, the wind blew to the south. God wants me to marry her. That's what starts happening here. We start figuring out timing by really weird uh, and, and, and like borderline stuff that was going on in the Old Testament that God said you shouldn't do, right? So let me first say here that there really isn't a pat answer to this question. There's not like five things you do and then, bam, timing is clear. Sometimes it can be like that. Sometimes it's not like that at all. So again, understanding who God is and understanding his wisdom, really these two things are going to play a, a crucial role in discerning, if you know God wants you to do something, and trying to discern uh, when God wants you to do that. And remember, there's still some freedom connected to this, okay? Uh, it doesn't matter if you propose on a Tuesday or a Thursday. God will still love both proposals, right? But if you wait like 19 years and your girlfriend's like, what's going on here? That might be t- a timing issue that doesn't honor God and disrespects your, your, your girlfriend, okay? So let's look at two verses that show us, they give us a little bit of insight into timing. Uh, James 1.5, okay? If any of you lacks wisdom, again, wisdom here is not particular details. Wisdom here is knowing God concretely. So what James is saying is as if you, uh, he says, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. James is telling us, look, if you want to know how to make good decisions in life, you need God's wisdom. And, and what I love about this verse, the reason we share it, is that uh, God doesn't fault you for saying, I don't know what's going on here, and he promises that he'll give you wisdom. He doesn't say, like, man, you've been a Christian like 96 years, and like, you don't, you're spelling wisdom with a Z. What's going on here? He doesn't say that. God will not fault you. He will honor the fact that you want to know and grow in him, okay? And then he will show you wisdom. How he does that is up to him, but he will, the promise is that. 
So God will give us wisdom. But then Genesis 12.1, this will be a particularly important voice to you if you were on our start team from years ago, from five years ago when we were still meeting in my living room. Genesis 12.1 tells us this. The Lord said to Abram, the Lord had said to Abram, this is the beginning, right, of how people follow God. It's the beginning of the story of Israel, which segues right into the story of the church. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. Sometimes in life, God does give us a James 1.5 type of clarity when, when we have to do something. And I always ask for that, but I don't always get it. And that's probably all I need to say here about that if, that's, if you get that. If God has clearly led you to do something and it aligns with his word and it's affirmed by his people and it's wise for your life and what you're doing, then we're really done here. At that point, you just go do it. Like, that's what you do because the timing is clear. However, there are also times in life when God gives us the Genesis 12.1 kind of command. We know what he wants us to do, um, but we don't get the, the chronological timeline on how we're actually supposed to do it. And for most people, I find that their story is not usually the James 1.5 kind of story. It's a Genesis 12.1 kind of story. They know generally uh, the place God is trying to get them to, but they don't have the particular details of how they're going to move forward. So in a situation like that, you, you are forced now to, to understand God, follow God, but with a certain level and sometimes even a very robust level of trust. And I think God designed it this way. The more common Genesis 12.1 story causes us to develop a deeper understanding and dependency upon God. So I'll give you another example here. Since we're celebrating the fifth anniversary of our church, let me share with those of you who have not been here for six years, if you count the time we're going to talk about now, what this looked like. We knew, like when my wife and I left New Orleans in 2009, we knew God wanted us to start a church in Florida. That's it. Like, that's it. We packed up to Penske. We drove down I-10 and then got all the way over here. We had we knew God was taking us to the place he was showing us. But apart from that, we had to have some healthy trust in that that he would make details clear as we got on ground. And so as we were starting the church, um, when we got to when we developed an area and and a start team, we began to plan out what life would look like as a church. We put together what is called the church planning proposal. It's a 30, 35-page document I wrote that lays out the first five years of our church, and we're at the last page right now. We're in the bibliography, basically. And so we wanted to develop a core of people who live missionally in our city as the foundation of our church. We didn't want to build a church on marketing and gimmicks. We wanted to build a church on people who love Jesus and were willing to sacrificially uh, serve others. That's in the foundation of our DNA. And we had to determine now, once we knew what we were going to do, we had to determine what, what... when we were actually going to do that. We knew what God wanted us to do. We just had to figure out when we were going to do it. And so we enacted the Trinity, the Holy Trinity of of decision-making. Our core team prayed about it. Um, I consulted wise people about it, people who had planted before me, people who who were kind of proven, had good track records with Jesus and and serving him well. And we, we generally began to get this consensus that the fall was a good time to move from small start team meetings, we were in a coffee shop at the time, to public worship. And after 10 months of that, we believed we had accomplished our first set of goals of connecting with people and serving our city. So we designated the fall of 2010, 10-10-10, as our launch date. And we did that ultimately based on scripture, a clarity in prayer, and wise counsel. We did all that and we developed a timeline. We then took a step of faith at a blind leap of ignorance. We'll talk about that here in a second. And we launched. That's the Genesis 12-1 timeline. There was even some expressive freedom to figure that out. But we were functioning within what we knew was biblical and, and just good Christian wisdom. And so through various means, the Genesis 12-1 way says, God shows you in real time the place he wants you to go. So when it comes to figuring out timing in your life, there's a, there's a big difference between these two statements. Taking a wise step of faith and, uh, you know, 
opposed to a blind leap of uh, ignorance out into the world and hoping it works out, that, that almost ridiculous hyper-spiritualism that we see sometimes. There are sometimes God calls us, to things, calls us to do things that might seem a little crazy, but I'm telling you that's not necessarily uh, the norm. Don't get comfortable in t- taking blind leaps of ignorance and then blaming God and people when stuff doesn't work out. And so what I mean is, is if, if Scripture and prayer and people you really trust are concerned about whatever it is, they say you're moving too quickly in life, be careful. You should, you should heed that warning, right? But if people are saying to you, hey, listen, um, like you've been sitting on this for like five years. It's, it's time. It's time to go. It's time to do something. Heed that warning. Other people will be able to give you corrective counsel in these areas. You've got to learn to discern that and trust that. And remember, th- there's no exact science to this. But this you do know. God wants you to know his will. He doesn't want you to err or make mistakes. Um, he wants you to live and love and serve him well with peace in your heart. And he's given you a freedom and tools to flesh it out. So press into his word, develop your prayer life, and find proven sources of wisdom to find the way, rather than living as if God wants you to remain in the dark. Because the bottom line here is, he does not want you to remain in the dark. Power, love, and self-confidence, not fear and timidity. He doesn't want you constantly guessing about life. He wants you to move forward with peace in your heart as you do. Okay? God wants you to know his will. He wants you to know what you need to do, and he wants you to know the timing of that. And you have an amazing amount of freedom in that. Last question. <clears throat> Last question. Um, this, I have to tell you, this was somewhat of a surprise. It, w- it wasn't a surprise that it was asked. I knew it was coming, but it was surprising the volume of how many times this has been asked verbally and even, even through the communication channels we created over the past four months. And so <clears throat> uh, the last question we'll address today is, are we ever going to get a permanent place to call home, a building? And uh, I've answered this question very consistently since the day restoration launched. I have said, uh, yes, our ultimate hope is that we have a permanent place to meet one day. And that's based on two prerequisites. Again, you're going to see there's a clear understanding, but not necessarily a really developed timeline yet. Half of where we are as a church is exactly what we're talking about today. What I have always said is, when it is missionally wise and financially prudent, it's at those points we'll figure out what that looks like. And what I mean by this is, we have always believed that there was going to come a time when, when temporary space needed to become something more permanent. And I won't beat around the bush. This is a conversation that many of you and I have had privately. And the nature of, of how many times this was asked on the, on the cards and just in community groups says that this, this requires no beating around the bush. We'll just get right into it. We're definitely kind of at a, at a place like that right now. We're, we're at a, a place where it's getting harder and harder um, to do what we're doing in, in portable space. And so, frankly speaking, I want to say a couple of things this morning. Um, and let me, let me preface this with this. Um, I love where we meet. I love our portable partnerships. We have them all over the city. They are wonderful. They are graces and gifts from God. There is not a negative voice or tone in what I'm saying right now. Um, and we're thankful for every relationship we have. But currently... Um, we're spending what I would almost consider to be inordinate amounts of time on money, uh, time and money on things like setting up, breaking down, uh, replacing equipment that's breaking from moving it all across the city. This, st- this stuff takes a real toll on people. For- forget the, fa- the fact that people are up at around 5.30 to get here to make this happen, right? They- they're up and then they got to be here at 7. Forget the toll on people. It puts a real crunch on everything we're doing to be out of here on time, and it's wearing out our equipment, okay? And while as a church, we have always had, we have a better than average and an above and beyond healthy tithing to rent ratio. We, we are a pretty fiscally disciplined church. Uh, we've always had good and stable giving. And the policy of our leadership is to spend what we have to spend to do God's work, but not to spend frivolously or unnecessarily, right? 
We, we have a good, I, I think, long-term trajectory of how we handle funds here. The truth is that every place we go, it causes, we have, we have to pay rent, here included. We have additional insurances that cover this. When we do things like at the creek, like we did last night, we have to pay for that space, and then we have to have insurances to cover that. Every, every time we go someplace, we are spending a great deal of time, money, and labor to, to get things up and down. This is energy and money invested in things that I think we might consider investing in something that is a little more, more stable. If we can find something that is more permanent and meets our needs. And so um, renting as we do now, simply put, it puts us at the entity, at the, uh, the mercy of every entity we rent from. And thankfully, God's been good to us. We have super good relationships um, locally with Regal and corporately with Regal. We have super good relationships with the creek. When we were at Java Jungle, we were good. God has given us as good a scenario as we could ever ask for here. So if, if, this, if, if our purpose and plans are this forever, then we should give thanks to God and we should really figure out how to serve well in our current circumstances, okay? But we also know that, at least at this point, it's worth asking the question whether or not that is what our future story would be. Again, there's, there's no like, secret thing I'm going to say in a minute. There's absolutely no end game to this right now, just a lot of prayer and question asking. Last year was a great example of how, you know, we had to cancel our Christmas Eve service because it's an outdoor service. And while it did not rain the exact hour that we had this creek service, it did not rain, but it poured the hours before and the hours after. And so we had to, we had to cancel the service because we cannot lug all that equipment setting up and breaking down uh, in that rain. And so we're at this place now where for us to accomplish the next stage of our vision, it is, wor- it is really worth asking the question, what does the future of, of our meeting spaces look like? If we want to become a church that plants churches, that's a vision for our church. If we want to have a greater capacity to train men and women to serve the gospel here and abroad, that's a vision statement for our church, right? And if we want to al- enlarge our orphan care mission, that's a vision for our church. We're already doing good things here with greater opportunities but, but there are opportunities out there that we can't even touch right now because we have some impediments in getting there. In all three of these areas, it's worth asking the question, is it time to devote less time, energy, and money to the challenges of being portable and more time, energy, and money to, to our vision? This raises a natural question. <clears throat> what will it take to get us a home? What will it take to get us there? Again, I want you to hear these as general statements, but they're important statements that I'd like, you to, I'd like to ask you to pray about. First, there are, two, there are really two things. Please pray for and keep your eyes open for a good space that can meet our needs. A lot of the places we meet all throughout the city, they were brought to us by you. So you guys already have, I think, a good understanding of keeping your eyes open for what's out there. And that's awesome. So if what I'm saying here is if you see something out there, say something to a leader in here. Our space solution, um, our very high probability will come through the voice of one of you who tells us something. And really what we're trying to figure out here is a place that we can um, house a modest worship service and have modest office classroom space throughout the week, consistent space we can go to when we need to figure out where our worship team is going to practice or if we wanted to do a midweek meeting or whatever it is, it's helpful for us to have a place we know isn't going anywhere, okay? That's option one, or it's, this is a less ideal option, but it's certainly one we could make work, is that we continue to worship here, which is wonderful. This place has been great to us, and I'd like to believe we're blessing the place also. We stay in a place like this, and then we find a secondary off-site classroom space to accomplish the same goal. Uh, the latter option, as I said, is not, is not the greatest option because it still requires some portability and moving and stuff, but it still has to be viewed as an option. Right now, we're praying about, God, how do you want to work? And we'll trust, if he makes that clear to us at some point, that that's the way he wants us to work. So currently, you might not know this, I almost took a picture of this, but I didn't have time. Uh, The church office is still in my home. Um, When we moved into our house, we knocked walls out and essentially framed 
the infrastructure of our church. We're a completely decentralized church. We have the full capabilities of a, of a church office, except we do it completely disconnected, decentralized, people and places all over the place, all right? But even that, like if you were to go in that, in that room, you would think it was a flat on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I mean, it literally is like, uh, it's like a 10 by eight, and I'm like sitting on top of my mouse to be able to work in that place. We have outgrown the office space. We need something that we can grow into a little bit, all right? And this is true with a lot of our spaces. It's getting a little harder to deal with them, all right? So we don't ever want to say, oh, things are hard, we can't move forward. That's nonsense. We're going to trust that God has a plan for us, and we're going to labor well no matter what our situation is. But it's time to start asking this question before God, since all of you are asking it to me. What's the future of our temporary space? So step one is let's pray. Step two is, there's a practical nature here, it's going to require a a more consistent level of financial generosity to ready ourselves for the next five years. If we want to see greater financial investment in the orphan ministry, in church planning, it's going to require that we all ask the question, um, are, are we consistently supporting the mission and ministry of restoration? And as you know, if you're here for the first time, Welcome to a conversation of families having with each other. Uh, if, you've, if you've been here forever, this will be common play. As you know, in the five years we've been meeting here, I've never done a 10-week series on tithing. I, we just don't really do that. I'm not saying we never would on generosity, because our, our, um, or on, on gospel generosity giving, our philosophy has always been to talk about gospel generosity in our own lives and the mission of restoration when it comes up in the books of the Bible we teach to. It's so prevalent in all the, Bibles, the books of the Bible that it, you don't even have to develop a series. You just have to be faithful to teach the text. And so we've always had this, this 2 Corinthians 9-7 philosophy when it comes to supporting the mission of God with our money. And there we read this, Each of you should give what you have, re- have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And Paul later, Paul's out, uh, Paul later excuse me, points out, he tells us this, I can't read the whole chapter to you today, but he tells us the point of our giving is that we would use it to declare the goodness of God through our ministry and mission efforts. We say even in our partnership classes, don't feel compelled to give to people individually in your life or to support the work of our church out of false obligation. The compulsion Paul talks about here is cheerful giving. He says, when you truly understand Jesus gave his life for you, then you're going to start getting generous with people. You're going to start getting generous so that you can support the mission and ministry of, of the church corporately and in your own life. Generosity is not contained just by the, the four walls of a building. Generosity knows no boundaries in the Christian faith. And since our first day, God has always met our needs through the generosity of our church family. Let me say this. I have never had to talk to you guys uh, about, about like our, our giving problems. We have a, we have a very generous church. We, we have always met our needs and been able to do above and beyond. That says something about a church our size. There is a track record of faithful service and giving here. But that said, it's likely going to take a more consistent commitment on all of our parts to see something like this really happen in our future. I'll spare you the statistics. If you want them, you can talk to me. We can get as detailed as we want about this. But I want to give you the general framework for this this morning. Here's my final answer and promise to you this morning about the building question. Even though the general consensus is we want to move in this direction, and hopefully um, I've answered this for enough people now that I won't have to answer it individually for a while. If not, I will do that. But spread the word if it's asked of you. Even though the general consensus is when and where, I need you to hear my heart on this. If we cannot afford a new space to call home, we won't move because it's just not missionally wise and financially prudent on our part to do so. It's super clear the church and the whole feels like this is something to explore, but I, and I agree, but I, the sheer amount of times this is asked kind of affirms this. And even though individually people have been looking and bringing up stuff and we've been praying and looking, there's, not, there's nothing out there. There is no like great thing we're keeping a secret, right? If, if something comes up, we'll talk to it, to everybody like a family. That's how we handle things here. But as we look, please hear me, wisdom says we are never going to financially overextend ourselves in any area, space included, that hinders our mission and ministry priorities. We're not going to essentially let bricks 
um, impede us from doing the work of the mission. That's what it means to be wise and prudent when it comes to understanding the role of space in our mission and the financial uh, requirements that are required. Now, that said, um, you might think this too. Meeting here isn't free. We pay kind of like what is considered a CPI rent index. We pay a fair market value to meet in this place. So if you've been functioning, and for the creek and for all these other places, if you've been functioning under the common assumption that temporary space is always cheaper than permanent space, please know that that's not always true. And in our case, it's not really true at all. We're at the place where it's, it's worth asking, much like in the consumer market, you say I'm paying this much in rent like and I can afford a house and it's, and it's $80 cheaper a month uh, when I amortize my loan or whatever it is we're at the place where we are, it's worth asking the question rent insurances and associated costs with all this the the the, the breakdown and setup equipment replacing stuff it's worth beg it's it's worth asking the question is this the wisest use of God's money there's not a concrete answer for that yet but I think we're going to have one sooner than later as far as what that is and then what God says for the future so what I'm saying here is if it turns out we can't afford to move because it hurts us, we just won't. I, I refuse, and I know your hearts, you're in the same boat, to, to basically pastor a church to keep a building up. We won't do that. But if a building modestly can support or something permanent, what we're doing, then we have to explore that option, okay? However, here's the other side of this, and this is how we'll wrap up. If we can't afford to move because some of us, and hear me, many of you here are super generous, I don't look at your giving records. That's not our policy here. But I see the general numbers every month. And I know that God has always met our needs, sometimes above and beyond. So don't take this as me being angry or negative here. However, if we can't afford to move because some of us, maybe you're on the other side of the generosity spectrum here, we're minimally or maybe not even at all supporting the work of restoration. You've been here for a long time, but there is no cheerful giving in this place. And that likely means there's minimal, if any, outside of this place. That's a different story. In, in light of this, so what we have is a mutual responsibility to lead well, but also to, um, as a family to serve well in this way. So in light of this, I want to ask you guys during response time to take some time to pray about this need today. Ask God if you're going to do your part when it comes to giving. Uh, if not, ask God why not, why that's not happening and if it's time to start. Because everything we have always done, we've done as a church family. We do this together. And so if we're going to make a change or move to some place, we'll do it together. That's the only way it'll happen. If, if there's a more permanent place in our current situation, we'll, we'll move the boxes together as a family. That will require an all-hands-on-deck uh, responsibility when it comes to giving. So please keep that in mind as you continue uh, to ask that question. And I hope you will start asking that today and as the weeks, months, and years kind of roll on. And more than anything, I want us to have a place that maximizes our ability to have the loudest voice for Jesus in our community. Uh, we've never been a flashy church, but we want to be a church that is loud. We want to be a church that is known as, as proclaiming the goodness of Jesus through voice and deed. So we want a facility that serves like an aircraft carrier. We don't want like a Titanic. We want a, we want a, a facility that allows us to, to house essential personnel and equipment so we can regularly send the jets out to move the kingdom forward. We can just as quickly turn the boat and send people out to do whatever we need to have. And I pray for the day that that place exists, that God gives us the stable platform to receive men and women who want to serve the kingdom in greater ways. We've already seen that happening with the addition of laws, people that found us from other places to come in. We already see the boats in the water. It's just kind of like not necessarily the carrier we're hoping for. And that's why we planted this church five years ago, to impact the kingdom in greater ways. We believed God had a future for us then, and he showed us he did. And now I'm asking that you believe that again with me as we think about the next five years. So I'll close today with this before we have worship, a, a little bit of worship and, a, and a, a video that was put together by our team. It's great. So you, maybe you can get a, an, an end cap in regarding how God has worked over these years. I want to share with you um, my greatest fear for our church. I'm not one for, for telling people what I'm afraid of. It's just my dad told me to never to do that. But I feel like today it's worth bringing this up because my father in heaven said it's worth it. So here's my, here's my, uh, my greatest fear for our church. This is the first and only time I'm going to tell you what I'm scared of. Cats, too. I don't like them, all right? Uh, 
I cannot stand them. They're shifty. If they were 100 pounds, they'd kill you like a lion. That's how it works, all right? <clears throat> cannot be trusted. So uh, here's my greatest fear for our church now. I'll leave the mammalian world out of this for a little bit. Uh, it's that we'll, Im- that we'll embrace the story of so many churches before us. They get excited, they plant, they're healthy, and they get stuck in the what is, right? They never long for what God's could be is. They're okay with now, but not the fact that God's always moving his kingdom forward. It's just a matter of whether, whether or not we're on the train. He's going with or, with or without us. It's my fear that we'll get comfortable giving thanks for what God has done in the past at the expense of believing and living in light of the fact that God wants to work to, uh, through us for, for the future. I fear that we'll stop worshiping Christ and we'll get comfortable worshiping the God of complacency, who promises to rob us of the joy of being and making disciples that plant new churches, that serve our city. And while I know that we cannot as a church solve the total global orphan crisis, God's given us a role. We have a part to play in that story. And if we're ever going to make a major dent in that, then we've got we've to make sure that complacency is not what we show up for, but truly serving Jesus is what we want to do. I fear the day, uh, if it ever comes, that we're so satisfied with the grace we have received from God and the love that we have for each other in this space that we forget there's a whole world outside of these doors and your community groups and your relational networks here that have, they haven't experienced either. They don't know the grace of Jesus and they've not ever had the loving hand of somebody on their shoulder. And so pray with me today that that is never our story. It has not been up to this point. What I love about our church is I never have to preach these things because it's not happening. I just have to preach these things as a reminder that, that we keep on this path. This has not been our story up to this point. I don't expect it will be in the future. But these next years truly do signify a new chapter in the life of our church. Years five to seven will dictate what our church looks like for the rest of its days. So uh, in the same way like that first year dictated what the first five looked like. So let's give thanks to God this morning for our what is. We should be thankful. You should have seen the creek last night. In fact, it's obvious to me that half the people probably off this place in ways that we can communicate in some ways we can't even say because we're involved in work that is too gritty to, to post on Facebook. I love the fact that our church is restoring grace in places where people don't even want to go. Let's pray that our story is never complacency. Let's give thanks to God for what he's done, but have the courage to ask God right now to fix our hearts on what this could be for the future of the Restoration family. And I'll leave you with this, the words of the Apostle Paul this morning. He's a church planner. Who gave, he gave these to a church that he planted in love 2,000 years ago, several of them, but the book of Philippi, Philippians, at the city of Philippi. He, this was a church just like ours some 2,000 years ago, and he said this to his church, and I pray that the the truth of the words that Paul communicated to his people would be a real encouragement uh, for me to you today as we think about our future. Philippians 1, 3 through 11. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. We have labored together, and this video in a moment will show you just how. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work and you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how, long for all of, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer. This should be our prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let me say to you guys, happy anniversary restoration. It has been an incredibly good five years. And let's pray that, um, that our next five, are ju- that they're better 
that they're greater. Not because we haven't done great things, but God is a God who promises the greater thing we want to do, the greater thing he will do through us. So let that be the battle cry of our hearts as we think about these next five years. Now pray with me as we move into uh, response time. Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity we have to to worship you today. And certainly as we have a little bit of closing worship and reflection this morning, I pray that you would just dial our hearts into you. God, we thank you for who you are, and we ask that you... um, that you help us to understand you are a God who is, you are a God who, for those of us who follow you, you should always be evident in our past, but our past should never be uh, an impediment for our future, whether our past is, is good or bad. You are a God of grace who promises us more for tomorrow. So may who you are and what you lead us to do, may the desire you have for our hearts, truly your desires, may they be our desires, and may we serve for the rest of the days that you give us individually and together as a church family. May we honor your son above and beyond all things. May everything we do, every, every tear that uh, we shed, every, every drop of sweat, God, that we sweat, everything we set up and break down, every word we speak in this place, every song of worship we proclaim to you, every mission and ministry service idea you give us, may they always honor your son Jesus. May people not remember us for who we are, but for who your son is and for what he has done through us. Take this time now we have and just bless it. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.